Well, good morning. I had one other announcement I forgot, so I will share it now. Uh, this afternoon, instead of having a normal uh, worship service as we usually would, we will have a little bit of worship, and we're going to have a lot of business. Um, there has been some business matters that we have been, y'all been waiting to find out what's going on, and so I'm ready to share uh, what's going on, okay? And we are going to vote on a project to move forward on it, and so pray about that. Um, and please, if you can, if you're a member of our church, be here, okay? Um, we do business meetings in the afternoon because morning we try to reserve more for worship and for the preaching and for teaching, and that's good. But it's kind of uh, membership requires that you're active, and and afternoon business meeting is just as important for the work of the church as coming to the morning preaching. So be here if you can. Uh, we're also going to talk about the pavilion. So I'll share with you uh, where we are at with that and what direction we're heading in. If you would, open your Bible to the book of Mark. Uh, you all know that I love the gospel of Mark. So as you turn there, let me ask you, how many of y'all remember what I preached last week? All right, four people. Awesome. Very effective preaching, Brother Darren. How many of y'all remember what I preached last week? Amen. And how many of y'all remember what we talked about? What was the title of my sermon? Look to the book, okay? And we talked about that there was a problem. What was the problem? Do y'all remember? That we look to ourselves and that there's a solution. What's the solution? Look to the book. There's an answer in the middle there. I skipped point two. The answer is the Bible, and uh, the solution is to look to the book. And I offered you a challenge. How many of you read 10 chapters last week? Amen. Do you think it made a difference? Okay. So if you read 10 chapters last week, how about you read 10 chapters this week? And if you really want to, read 10 more. Okay. Um, it takes about, I would just say, it takes about five or six minutes to read a chapter, an average chapter of the Bible. And so that's like 10 chapters is about an hour of reading. Okay? Uh, if you want to get into a more in-depth study, that's great. Do it. Uh, but continue to look to the book. How many of y'all this morning have keys with you? If you're a grown-up, get your keys out, please. I have four keys on this key ring. Uh, my wife... Uh, used to fuss at me for always having my keys in my pockets when I was preaching because it made my suit look lumpy. And so now I have a set of church keys that are in my office uh, that has like 12 keys on it because for some reason we have 12 different locks. But you have your keys out, right? What, are these, what do these keys do? What do these keys do? They open door... No, no, I think the doorknob, when you turn the doorknobs, when you open the door, what does the key do? It locks... And it unlocks, right? Essentially, what is a key? It is a tool, correct? It's a tool. Uh, It's a tool that it's made for a specific uh, mechanism. And the mechanism's job is to lock or unlock. And the only person who can lock or unlock the mechanism, supposedly, is the one with the key, right? Keep your keys out, okay? I, I'm not, I may not have you jingle them or anything for me, but keep them out because I want you to think about this uh, because I want to talk about faith today. Uh, faith. How, how many? We, we all have some measure of faith. Uh, many of us here 
have put our faith in Jesus Christ, maybe all of us, I don't know, uh, but most of us here have at least made a profession that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and that we have trusted him for eternal life and we have trusted him to have paid for our sin and for us to be able to stand before God, a righteous and holy judge, as innocent because only of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have that faith. But, you know, faith, there's more than just that usage of faith. And uh, so I want to talk about faith. Faith is like a key. We're going to just make this connection right now. Faith is like a key. Now, what can you do with the key? You can do two things with the key when the right lock. What does it do? It does what? It locks and it unlocks. Okay. So the key, we mean we need to make sure we're using the key the right way, all right? Key, uh, it, it, faith is like a key. So if we turn it one way, we can unlock the power of God. We can uh, turn it the other way, though, and we can lock up the power of God. Uh, we turn it one way, it is belief. We turn it the other way, it is unbelief. And believe it or not, both of those things are pretty powerful in all of our lives, so I want us to, to try to connect with this through this story here in Mark chapter 6. And um, let's just read our text. We're going to read these first six verses, Mark chapter 6. It says, and, when he, and he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man the, uh, these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled, he being Jesus, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray you'll help me as I try to preach this message. Help, help me to, to unlock the truth of this key of faith, to, to show. I pray that this word will illustrate for us uh, faith used well and, 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 and see what unbelief will work because we see it here in this passage. Lord, I pray that it will impact each of us, uh, myself and all that are gathered here, all that listen, whether it be online. Lord, I pray it will it will impact us and challenge us to examine ourselves and consider how we're using the key of faith. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your promises of this word. I thank you uh, that you answer our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. This is a story about Jesus going, where did it say he was going? Verse 1, he came into where? His own country. Where's he going? He's going home. He's going back home. He's going to his hometown. He's going to Nazareth. And unfortunately, uh, this story reveals the power of unbelief and the wrong attitudes that 
limit the movement of God. And the question for you is, do I possess these same attitudes existing here in this text? And then if you do, what do we do about it? This, as the story unfolded, if you were listening, we find Jesus coming to his hometown. His disciples were there. He, he began to teach in the synagogue, and, and immediately they, they, were, uh, they were blown away by this guy who's teaching with such authority and knowledge that was surpassing the, any local rabbi. And, and they, they whisper among themselves, what did they say? From whence hath this man these things? Where did he get this stuff? What wisdom is, is this which is given unto him that he, even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? So let's take a, a little closer look. First, I want us to see the cause of their unbelief because that's really what we see. The example we see here in this passage is, is unbelief, the cause of their unbelief. You know, unbelief is a pretty powerful force and it has devastating ramifications. First in this life and then it can in the next. Unbelief is something everybody deals with. We like to, you know, because we come to church every Sunday and we, you know, we pay our tithes and, and uh, we give towards missions and, and we give towards all, all kinds of other works that our church does. And we, we spend our time uh, investing and in, in teaching and, and serving in children's ministries or serving food at a fellowship. And, and it's easy for us to go, well, I, unbelief is not a problem for me. That's a problem for the people outside. That's why we need to shine our light so bright so they can believe. But the reality is, is unbelief may be the biggest problem this world has, including in the church. Unbelief is, uh, is, is everywhere, and it has devastating uh, consequences. There's examples of, of belief throughout the Bible, but there's also many examples of unbelief. Think about Eve. I mean, it starts at the very beginning, doesn't it? Eve, who was tempted to doubt God's goodness and his clear instructions. And so uh, she chose unbelief. Or, or what about the people of Noah's day? The people of Noah's day, they refused to believe Noah's warnings. And they chose unbelief. And what happened to them? They perished. What about after the Exodus? Aaron doubted. As Moses was up on Mount Sinai, he doubted. And he, what did he do? He created a golden calf. God's wrath was kindled and 3,000 people died because of their unbelief. What about Achan? Do y'all remember the story of Achan? I love that story of Achan and I've shared it with you before. Uh, it's been a while, but you remember Achan is contrasted with who? Rahab. Y'all know Rahab. Rahab, that, that Canaanite woman who lived, in, who lived in Jericho, who had no claim on the promises of God, yet because of her belief, she became, yeah, actually she's in the line of Jesus Christ himself. But Achan, this guy who, who was from the best tribe in Israel, he had everything going for him. He didn't believe God's commands, and instead he, he stole what wasn't to be stolen. He kept for himself what was to be left for God, and he died, and his family. He chose unbelief. There's many examples. Unbelief here in the Son of God, it, look in John 3.18, or I'm going to read John 3.18 for you. Remember that conversation in John chapter 3 is between Jesus and Nicodemus? 
It says that he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the, the unbelief in the Son of God activates God's wrath. And will send people into hell. A place that was not made for them. It was pretty common for crowds to be uh, astounded by Jesus' teachings and his miracles. But that was until he came to his hometown and they were astounded for another reasons. Why didn't they believe? It says that they were offended by him in verse 3. Remember it says, and they were offended at him. The word offense in, in, this, uh, in this Greek book is the word, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pronounce it in my Texan accent, scandalizo. I don't know if that's the right Greek accent. Scandalizo. What does that sound like? They were scandalized by what they saw. It means that whatever Jesus said to them that evening offended them at their very core. I mean, it, this wasn't just disagreement. This is, this is a, a, a deep offense of the soul, of the insides. They were outraged. They had a visceral reaction. Uh, the first thing I see is they were offended by his claims. Look in verse 4 again. It says, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. You know, uh, Nazareth's reaction of Jesus is the culmination of, of this visit, but also his first visit. This is the second time he comes to Nazareth after his public ministry had begun. The first visit we see is recorded in Luke chapter 4. If you want, you could turn there and look at that. Uh, we will read a little bit of that uh, here in a little bit. But that took, uh, about a year, it took place about a year before this visit. And, and Jesus had returned to Nazareth at that time, the first time in the, in the power of the Spirit. And, and it was uh, just after his time of testing and temptation in the Judean wilderness, following his baptism of John and um, uh, by John. And it was customary for traveling Bible, uh, 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 traveling rabbis to be invited to the local synagogue. And, uh, and to read scriptures and, and then to comment on them. And so I want to try to paint this picture for you. Every little town in Israel had its own synagogue. And, uh, and, and, it, and on the Sabbath day, everything stopped. Everything would come to a halt. Everyone went to worship. In fact, uh, uh, they would sit in a very prescribed way, in a very specific place. They had assigned seats, maybe even. It was very routine. And there were many familiar faces. The same people came. It's like church here. You know, you got your assigned seat, and if somebody sits in it, you got to kick them out of it. Hey, listen, man, this is my assigned seat. You're not allowed to sit here. No, not quite. I hope you don't do that. Um, and so you can imagine it, that it had only been a brief time since he had been there. And since he had been actually a citizen of Nazareth, and now he's begun his public ministry, he, he goes to Nazareth and does as he always did. The sun was setting on Friday night, and as the sun is setting, Jesus would have heard the very familiar sound of, of two trumpet blasts from a ram's horn. That was the warning. Hey, the sun's going down. 
When the sun sets, the Sabbath begins. Everybody, everybody pay attention. Sabbath is approaching. They'd have a little bit of time left to, to kind of wrap up their business. And then, and then the, they would blow one more time. And at that time, everything would stop. One more, one more time, everything would stop. All the work would halt. And then there would be a little bit of space of time. And then this, this priest or this uh, uh, rabbi would blow one last single blast indicating that Sabbath had begun. Something that was very familiar to Jesus and everybody who lived in this town. And in the dawn of the Sabbath morning, Jesus would have found his way to the synagogue. Just like he always had when he was growing up there. It had been so much a part of his life. He would have taken his seat. He would have seen so many familiar faces. Neighbors, childhood friends, his brothers, his sisters and their families. And his extended family, uncles, aunts, cousins, all of that was the same. But Jesus wasn't the same. Because in that time since his last visit, he'd become pretty famous. (laughs) He was no longer the hometown boy. He was a famous man. So I think there probably was some curiosity about him. And so because of his fame as the teacher, he's invited to speak. Let's turn our eyes to Luke 4, verse 16. It says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. This, these, are, these, are, these are words from Isaiah. Okay, This is what he's reading. To preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister, and he sat down, and all the eyes of them were, uh, that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So he reads from Isaiah 61, which is clearly a messianic prophecy. And after reading, Jesus tells his former neighbors and friends and family that he is the fulfillment of this passage. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And they clearly understood what he was saying. And at first they were positive about it. But Jesus recognized their response for what it was. It was a a superficial desire to see him perform some miracles. And then Jesus rebuked them. And then if you read that story on, what they did is they sought to kill him afterwards. They were incensed. They were angry at his message. And so now, in, in Mark chapter 6, it's almost a year later, and Jesus has returned to his hometown again, and they seem willing to give him a second chance. He is, after all, extremely famous. But whatever he says to them offends them all over again. They were offended by his claims. Not only that, they were offended by how ordinary he was. 
Look in verse 3. What did they say? Is this not the carpenter? And they were offended at him. They had before them Messiah, the anointed one of God, the root of Jesse, the God in the flesh. They had before them the very Son of God. But what they saw was the carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph. They limit, their limited view of who Jesus was kept them from understanding his true identity. They all knew Jesus as a local carpenter, a tradesman. They had watched him grow up for the better part of 30 years. I have no doubt that there may have been women in that synagogue thinking, well, I, you know what? I changed his diapers when he was a baby. Who is this guy? Maybe there was men who thought, you know what? I, my sons used to play tag with him. The rabbi may be remembering, I'm the one that taught this guy Hebrew. All he knew was Aramaic before that. Jesus had been catapulted onto the public scene after beginning his public ministry at the age of 30. And now his former neighbors, his extended family, still view him as the oldest son of a pretty familiar family in their village. He was just Jesus to them. Well, when we say just Jesus, that may mean a little more to you than it meant to them. He was just, he was just a hometown kid. They had stereotyped Jesus. They had put him in a box. You can't be what you're saying you are. You can't because you're just Jesus. You know, in much the same way, we can limit God and what God can do because we might not be able to get past our presuppositions of who Jesus is. By the way, if you need to get past, if you want a good, a good, a good way to understand who Jesus is, uh, look to the book, okay? <laughs> spend time in his word. Uh, don't spend time on Google, okay? Uh, if you want to you know, allow Google to help you and help you learn a little more, that's great. Let God's word be the commentary to Google, okay? Um, this is eternal. This is unchanging. This is God's holy living word, and Google is not. We live in a world that is still offended by Jesus. Jesus is offensive. So people will try to reconstruct him. We do it in our own lives. I think a lot of Americans do this. We kind of we kind of like the 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 uh, uh, it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood Jesus you know happy and smiling very non confrontational sweet and caring and and uh, and the problem with that is that not that's not how God is we need a new birth to be seen favorably in God's eyes we want some people want a a in this world they especially want a progressive moral example social warrior type of Jesus. Uh, they, they want to look to Jesus as an example uh, for, for social consciousness and social example. What's right? What's how you should behave? The problem with that is that Jesus becomes merely an example for, uh, for morality rather than changing the culture by saving the lost. Amen. What that really means is that they want to strip Jesus of his divinity. Some people, I think unfortunately a lot of people in Houston, want the 
Live your best now, Jesus, who gives goodies. This is the all, it's all about you, Jesus. The one who gives you the desires of your heart instead of the desires of his own. And what the problem with this is, is that Jesus becomes a means to an end, which is our enrichment, rather than a savior to be worshipped. The reality is that Jesus is Christ. And that name Christ holds with it a whole host of realities, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the one savior of the world, that he is the son of the living God, come to die for sinners condemned to hell. They were offended by his, how ordinary he was. They were also offended by his familiarity. Uh, look again at verse 3. He says, is, is this not uh, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and of Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So this just comes right on the heels of, of several miracles that Jesus had performed and and everywhere he goes, the people are mesmerized by his teaching and, and shocked by his miracles. And that, again, until he comes to his own hometown. And when it comes right down to it, these people did not want to believe what all the evidence revealed Jesus to be. God's anointed Messiah. Jesus, after all, he was one of them. Nazareth was a small town, maybe 500 people. In first century Israel, a, a town that size, uh, in, that, in a town that size, Jesus would have had a, a lot of extended family members, neighbors, and friends who knew him. They knew him. He'd grown up in their community. They had familiarity of him and his family. Uh, they knew his father. They knew his mother, his brothers, his sisters. They had watched him grow up. They, and, then, and so they're asking, how can this little boy who grew up in, their, in our neighborhood be anything more than I am? That's what they're thinking. You know, they, not only could they not see who he was, they didn't want to see who he was. They had limited hearts. As well as limited vision. They might have been amazed by his teaching, but they couldn't bring themselves to see past how familiar he was. They were offended by his familiarity. They had pride that would not allow them to accept how he was so much more than they were. In verse 4, what did he say? He understood this. Jesus said he understood this. He said, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. He knew because of their pride, they would not receive him as a prophet. Had they received Jesus as the son of God, <laughs> they would have been the recipients of his ministry. But instead, they received him as a man of the flesh. And they lost the opportunity to be touched by the power of God. I said just a little bit ago that 
we have a hard time accepting that there may be unbelief in our own life. We struggle with that. I mean, how could we be accused of unbelief if, if we have had faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and put our faith and trust in Him? Do you know Jesus regularly rebuked His disciples for their unbelief? A few chapters over, in chapter 16, the end of this book, Mark 16, verse 14, it says, Afterward he had appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. And, you know, so, so his, his disciples are sitting together, and they're eating together, and Jesus appears to them, and what do you think his reaction? What would you imagine if, you, if, if the words stopped there, if you didn't know what happened next? What would you imagine? Oh, man, this is a great homecoming. This is going to be great. Hey, Jesus is here again, and, and it's so good to see him, and he's going to be happy to see us. But what does it say? He upbraided them. He rebuked them with their unbelief and hardness of their hearts because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. I I think this morning that there are believers, even in here, who need to be delivered from their unbelief. I believe fully that there's many of us who have genuinely committed our life to Christ, have genuinely trusted Him for eternal life, but who are not believing and trusting in Him for some very important promises that He gave us. There are consequences for their unbelief. Consequences for the way they used their faith. Instead of unlocking the power of God, the power of God was locked up. Look in verse 5. And this is not me making this up. Just look at what it says in verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work. Save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. I will tell you this, this is not, the issue is not that Jesus lacked some power or that God suddenly was uh, 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 restrained, his power was restrained uh, to perform miracles, but really that there was no more reason to do it. There was no reason to, to, to do these miracles there for them. I mean, what was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? Somebody wake up and tell me. What was that, brother, brother Eric? To establish, to establish his authority. The, the, the Jesus' miracles were there to, to, to prove his claim that he was God's anointed Messiah. So if they won't believe his words, are miracles really going to help? If they've already judged, this guy is offending me at my core because of what he's saying. Then, our, then miracles aren't going to help. Unbelief then locked up the power of God. Unbelief in our life will limit what God can do in your life. Now again, God is no less powerful because of your unbelief. Okay? It's simply that He has designed 
power to be used in a response to faith. That's why when I, I how many of y'all, y'all know who Elon Musk is? Did y'all know Elon Musk um, made a verbal assent to faith in Jesus Christ? Have y'all heard that? He, he, had, he had a conversation, uh, I don't know if, it may have been an interview where someone was sharing with him the gospel and asked him, hey, if you, if, if you were told that the only way to get to heaven is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you believe in that? And he goes, sure. I don't know what's in Elon Musk's heart, (laughs) but I would say, based on that response, it doesn't mean he's saved. That's the same thing as some uh, uh, hopped up preacher asking you to come down and shake his hand, and then he'll say, well, now you've shook my hand, you're saved because of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with faith. Faith in what God has done, what God can do. It's just following somebody's Heretical instructions. It's the same thing as as some preacher kneeling by somebody and saying, now, listen, if you want to be saved, you just repeat this prayer after me. It's wrong. It's not faith. God's power works in a response to faith. Can it work beyond your faith? Absolutely. He doesn't need you to show his power in this world, but his his word says that that's how he'll work it. That's the the rule that he's going to follow, the the law that he uses. Do you believe? Well, then I'll show up. I I like to, um, when I talk about God and him showing up and showing off, uh, I'm married. Did y'all know that? I'm really happy to be married. My sweet bride turned 21 again yesterday. And... um, I'm, I have to confess, I'm more blessed than I can possibly express here because she's my wife. But you know, my wife, one of the blessings of being a husband is um, uh, to a sweet, petite, dainty wife like my wife is that if she has a hard time opening in a jar, guess who she goes to? She comes to me. So if there's a jar of, of delicious raspberry jam and she is withheld from that deliciousness, because the lid is on too tight, she goes, honey, can you open this jar? And guess what I get to do? What do I get to do? I get to, oh, okay, here we go. All right, baby, watch this, watch this. Hold on, let me put my sleeve up a little more. Uh, pop, and I get to show up and I get to show off. God likes to do that for you. But why would he do that for you if you're not going to believe that he did it? God acts in our life with power because of our belief in him. And so if you're not using the key of faith, if you're you're not turning it towards a belief and putting your faith in him, well, that power might just stay locked up in your life. I'm not trying to give you a, a, a formula to manipulate God. Please understand me, okay? I'm not trying to tell you, okay, well, if you'll just really believe, then God's going to give you whatever you want. He's going to, no, 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 no. But let me tell you, you're missing out on what God wants to do with your life. Our church will miss out on what God wants to do with this church if we don't put our faith in him and trust him to do it. I will miss out as the pastor of this church if I don't trust God. We have to trust him. 
The power of God will be locked up. The provision of God will be limited. Because of their unbelief, the provision of God had desired to give them what, what God had wanted to give them was limited. They were so offended by Jesus, they wouldn't receive him. Jesus still offends. People nowadays are offended by the ordinariness of the gospel. <laughs> Jesus came and lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died in your place. And if you're willing this morning to drop your trust in your, abil- in your goodness, to drop your trust in your past and your qualifications and your idea that I'm a pretty good guy, I don't know why God would send me to hell. If you're willing to drop those ideas, if you'll drop the idea of your record, that you might be ready to show to God when you stand before him someday, your record that says, well, listen, I went to college and, and I paid my taxes and I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. If you're willing to drop that and just put all your faith in his holiness, his, his performance, his past, his record, Listen, in that moment, you will have a relationship of, with God of acceptance, of forgiveness, of eternal salvation. There's no parallel to, to, to this in, in the world, in any other religion. There's no religion that, that offers this. There's no other God or, or guru that shares this. The gospel is offensive to people. People say, that's it? I just have to say, well, I'm not good enough, and God's good enough, and so I'll trust him. That, that can't be it. Give me, give me a 12-step program, please. Uh, can, you, can you give me something I can, I can do so I can achieve it on my own? People are offended by the ordinariness of Christians. They think Christians are... are, are, are are people who have it pulled together. They think Christians are, are the ones who should have all their character flaws erased and, and under control. Uh, they think Christians are, are to really be the people who are living the good life and, and have it all together. But in reality, Christians are just people who've come to see that they're a moral failure. You want to know what it takes to be a Christian? You've got to realize you're a dirtbag. You're a sinner. The gospel is, is not for people who say, I can do it. Yeah, I can get there. I can climb that mountain. No. The gospel is there for people who say, I can't do it. Other religions say the good are in, the bad are out. The disciplined are in, the undisciplined are out. That's what the Jehovah's Witness wants you to think. That's what the Mormons want you to think. Hey, if you, if you check these boxes, if you do these things, you're going to be in. You get in, no problem. You just got to do it. Follow the path. Do what we say. The ordinary, ordinariness of Christians offends the world. Also, people, I think a lot of Christians now, are offended by how ordinary the Christian experience is. Last Sunday, we had 96 in our morning service, and I praise God. I don't know how many are here today. I, I didn't stop while I was preaching to count you. 
There's churches uh, within a, just a short drive from here, really short, just, I mean, like a mile and a half, that will pack people in. And I'm not going to say they're, uh, they're insincere, okay? Because I don't know. I really don't. But people sure are excited about the flash. They get attracted to the show. They, they enjoy the spectacle of a, of instead of just like a, a morning worship where we sing together and, and it's not about a show that's happening right here, it's about a worship that's taking place out here. They sure do get attracted to the spectacle of a, like a, a live concert with lasers and smoke machines. And you think I'm making jokes, but they do it. You know why? Because people are attracted to a spectacle. Uh, they want you to feel like uh, that... Being a Christian is something extraordinary, and it is. But it's not because of, uh, of how the circumstances of your life change around you. It's because of what God does in you. God, God wants to fix our broken lives, not put you through a great concert. And, uh, I, I better, I'm going to chase that rabbit trail too far. The vast majority of these people here did not receive anything from God. What does it say in verse 5? He could do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. They were so offended at Jesus that their unbelief locked up the power of God and limited the provision of God, what he wanted to do in their life. And not only that, the promises of God were lost on them. I think most of you this morning here are believers. That's why usually on Sunday mornings I preach generally to believers. Because that's who we are. This is, this is where the church is gathered. We is, the church is supposed to be made up of believers. And as believers, we are recipients of the promises of God. In fact, <laughs> the Bible says that all the promises of God are offered to us, all of them, in Christ. Ephesians 1, I love Ephesians 1. Y'all know that I couldn't help but go there. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. In heavenly places, how? In Christ. The, the prom, if, as believers, all the promises of God are offered to you. So, it's through faith, through belief, that we will receive the promises of God. Listen, you don't get saved without faith. What does it say in the next chapter of Ephesians? Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace, that's God's part, through faith, that's your part. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. Listen, this isn't a work that you're doing, this is an act that you're taking to trust in Christ. Through faith, we receive the promises of God. Through unbelief, they're lost on us. Hebrews 4 gives us an example. We read this, uh, this passage last week, Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Listen, we should, we should fear God and and and. 
fear that our own unbelief exerting itself in our life, that we might come short of God's promises, that we might miss something that he has wants for us. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Listen, that's saying if you don't trust that God will give you his promises, by the way, it's going to be really hard for you to, to know God's promises if you don't look to the book and get in his word. But if you don't trust him to, have those, to offer you those promises, and, and, and I understand why you might think God wouldn't do that for me. Why would he do that for me? I, I'm a dirtbag. I understand it. I mean, I may be a, a pastor and I might wear the suit and I didn't wear a tie this morning because my, I'm fat and I couldn't button my top button. But you know what? It's as easy for me to go, why would God do anything for me? I'm such a moral failure in so many ways. I'm a sinner. It's easy for me to not believe in God's promises. It's easy for me to go, why would God forgive me? I shouldn't even approach him. I'm unclean. And I'll miss out on, on the peace of forgiveness. Because I'm just too ashamed to go to... Let me tell you, if you will drop... That's, that's, I don't know if that's the opposite of pride. or If we would just humble ourselves and come before him and trust him, put our faith in him, let me tell you, he will give you peace that you can't understand. He'll give you joy. He'll deliver power in your life and in our church to do his work. According to that verse we just read, those people that did not respond in faith, but in unbelief, they lost the opportunity to receive the blessings of God. We saw the cause for their unbelief, the consequences of their unbelief. What about the cure? What's the cure? Uh, I promise I'll spend less time on this, but you need to listen up. It really should be obvious, I think, what the cure uh, of unbelief is. What is it? Huh? Believe. Yeah, there you go. When you stick the key in the door, uh, you know, how silly would it be for you to go to your house and, you know, if, when you turn it this way, it locks the door. When you turn it this way, it unlocks the door. How silly would it be? Here's my, that's, that's my office key. This is my uh, house key. If, you stuck, if I stuck my key in that door and I just turned it and then I tried to open it, I turn it if I turn it and locked it and then try to open it, well, wait a minute, is that going to work? Oh, okay, well, that didn't work. I'll stick it back in there. I'll turn it that way. It's still locked. Wait a minute, what's the, isn't that silly? Yeah, we should believe. That's, uh, maybe that's a little simplistic for you. But that's the answer, faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's trust that gives us a relationship with him. And we can trust him because if you keep trusting him, you'll get to know him. You know, when my, my wife asks me to open up raspberry jam jars, because I've opened raspberry jam jars before, I've even done that once or twice where I did the, okay, baby, hold on. Let me hold on. Let me show you. Watch this. She knows I'll do it because I can do it. I have the power. Jar opening. I can do it. She's seen me do it. She knows that I love her. And then I'm nice enough to do it. I won't give her a hard time. Why? You can't open it by yourself. Why well, I got to get up off the couch? And do no, she knows that I want to do it. 
God wants to show up and show off in our life. And if you let him, you'll learn that he'll show up every single time. A few chapters later, uh, in this book, chapter 9, we encounter the story of a father who comes to Jesus, asking him to heal his son, afflicted by an uh, evil spirit. The father brought the boy to Jesus' disciples first, and they couldn't do anything to heal the boy. So Jesus said, bring him to me. And in chapter 9, verse 21, we pick up the story. It says, he asked the father, how long is this ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, since he was a child, and oftentimes it, this evil uh, illness upon him, this evil spirit upon him, hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. It's tried to kill him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. <coughs> and Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him. All things are possible to him that believeth. And pay real close attention to this prayer. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he, oh, excuse me, that's the next verse. And straightway the father of the child cried out. Jesus had just told him, listen, if you would just believe, anything is possible. And so this father, he cried out. And he said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto them, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And let me tell you what happened. The child was saved, freed from this evil spirit. But that prayer, listen, I don't know what's going on in your life that this message might be for you. I can I can tell you what what could go in what be good could be going on in my own life that causes me to need to hear this message where you're struggling with unbelief, struggling to trust that He will fulfill His promises in your life. But that prayer, that's what we need to pray. Lord, I know Your Word says that You'll do this. I believe your word says it. Help my unbelief. Help me to submit my unbelief to you and just trust you. My unbelief will, will generate all kinds of different things in our life. It'll show up in different ways, and I could go on about that, and I have notes about that. But we must be willing to adopt an attitude that God can and will work for us if we'll only trust him to do it. I'm going to chase one more little rabbit trail here. Actually, would you turn to Romans chapter 10? There's a last verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. You might wonder, um, how do we come to the place where we really believe Him? We really trust Him. Where we're willing to step beyond what we can see. Romans 10, 17. We're talking about using faith the right way, right? Choosing belief over unbelief. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith grows as we give attention to what God is saying 
in his word. So what are we supposed to do? Look to the book. These are the words of life. These hold the promises of God. And many, maybe most of us in this room have trusted in the promise that he will save you from eternal wrath because of his love and because of his shed blood. But will you trust him to get you to the next weekend? Will will you trust him to, to give you peace and comfort through illness? Will you trust him to to help you see a life without that loved one in your life that you just lost? Will you trust him to carry you through the darkest times? Will you trust him to keep you humble and in a right spirit before him when life is going your way? When all the circumstances come together? Will you do it? As we open our Bible and study it, as we seek God in prayer for him to reveal by his Holy Spirit the lessons the Bible contains, then we'll begin to have the eyes of our understanding opened. There's other verses I could share with you right now. I just shared the last one though. As you hide God's word in your heart, faith will grow. How many of y'all uh, love um, fiction, reading fiction? I love to read fiction. I do. Uh, I usually like... I don't like the dark, scary stuff very much. I like the fun, adventurous stuff. Um, how many of y'all will read those books and and you'll enjoy it so much you'll read it again and again and again? Uh, how many of y'all have ever read a, a, a fiction story maybe a dozen times? How many of y'all read a certain fictional story every year? Hey, I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings every year. It's awesome. I love it. It's great. Every year. I listen to it on audiobook. I drive around a lot. But I love these stories. And you know what? I love them so much. I've heard them so many times that, you know what? I know what's going to happen. I know how the story goes. I even understand more about the, the motivations behind some of these characters and what they were doing and why they chose to do what... I think about these things... Have you ever done that with God's word? I'll tell you what I need. I want to look to the book. I'll tell you what I'm, my goal is. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a doctor, a, a professor named Grant Horner, who has a program for reading the Bible and not studying necessarily, but reading it, okay? Often. And it's 10 chapters a day. If you want, if you want to see what that looks like, I'll share it with you. It's pretty clear. Ten chapters a day. But what, what will happen is you'll end up reading this book over and over and over and over multiple times a year. And it takes about an hour a day. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But it'll be worth it. Because while I love The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, I love to hear about uh, hobbits and you know how funny they are and they live in holes and it means comfort and all those things. I love that. I love to hear Gandalf rebuke Bilbo, you know, all these. I love all that. It's great. But you know what? That's a fantasy. And while this seems fantastical, it is real. And not only that, I'm in here. I'm in this book. So are you. Look to the book. 
Let's trust him. Let's stand together. Father, I thank you again for your word. Lord, I thank you for the patience of our congregation this morning to